Isn't it wild that it takes so much time to recognize the most fundamental aspects of your humanity, which is that you're like deeply connected to other people. <laughs> and like, I just see activism as this kind of ecosystem and it makes me feel more human and makes me feel so connected to people in a way that I haven't before. Welcome to Little Revolutions, brought to you by Frida. This is a series of conversations about the double standards, societal problems, and systemic injustices that feel bigger than any one of us. Every week, we talk to someone who's questioning the norms and rewriting the script. They're activists and politicians, artists and athletes, and many, many more. Each one of our guests talks us through relatable little revolutions they're making in their own lives and the ways in which we can all be changemakers, whoever we are. On today's episode, we speak to activist Gina Martin. She's best known for campaigning to make upskirting illegal in England and Wales. We talk to Gina about how to use your voice in a world that doesn't make you feel safe. With this podcast, we like to let people introduce themselves however they want and define themselves however they want. So how would you like to introduce yourself? I would like to introduce myself as Gina. I'm a gender equality activist. And what that means is that I do all sorts of things, whether that's campaigning, organizing, writing, speaking, workshops, and just self-education on things that I care about. And I try and embody the things that I care about. It's always interesting to hear how people define themselves because we are so rarely given the space to do that. Very true. Thank you for introducing yourself. So you're probably best known for being the driving force in making upskirting illegal in England and Wales. For people who are listening and watching who don't know about your story and what you did, however you want to tell the story and what your experience was, um, could you share what happened and how you used that to fight for change? Of course, yeah. That was in that was probably my first foray into like what you would say is traditional activism. I don't think I would have ever identified as an activist when I was doing that. It was more something that I, through the decisions I made and the patterns I created started to be called one and it was easy for people to understand what I was doing. Um, that was in 2017 and there was a couple of um, catalysts for that to happen. The obvious one was that I went to a festival called British Summertime and a group of guys had been hitting on me and my sister like Hitting on would be too kind of a word. Harassing would probably be more of an appropriate word. Continuously. And we constantly were saying, can you just let, let it go? We're just trying to have a nice time. And one of them made a really crass, rude joke. And I made one back because I was really frustrated with them. And this was in like broad daylight, you know, at a family festival. And, and I've talked actually a lot about how I describe and retell this because... I construct the story with details that don't need to be in there because I've victim blamed myself for about seven years, even though I know like intellectually that that's wrong. And I, and I advocate for not doing that. And I try and work that out myself continuously. I still can't fully. Um, yeah, we continued to, to try and get him to leave us alone. And then one of the guys with his phone he stuck his phone up between my legs and took photos up my skirt of my crotch and I happened to find out because firstly I felt this like sort of laughing energy they were very quiet but I could feel you know you can just tell people looking at you for that weird sixth sense sixth sense and then one of the guys was standing in front of me this very very tall blonde guy and I kind of looked around him because he was back to me and I kind of looked around him and he was on whatsapp and he had this picture and he was laughing at it um, and he'd obviously been sent it, which I didn't realize at the time because it all happened so fast. 
And I grabbed his phone and then we got into like a scuffle and I, I slapped him and he was sort of grabbing me. And then this woman next to me just was like, give me the phone. So I just gave, I didn't know her, but I just gave her the phone. And then um, he got in her face and she slipped the phone back to me and I like was trying to get out, but there were so many people around and these two guys just like moved out of the way and they were like, run. And I ran to the security and this guy chased me and it all got a bit scrappy and stressful. And then the police came and being the person I am in the world at that age, 24, 25, um, I was like, oh, the police are here. So it'll be fine, lol. Which obviously it yeah. won't be fine just because the police are there. And actually, interestingly, I had a stalking case for like, I don't know, five years. If, no, sorry, it'd been going on five years, but the case was about a year to two years. And that had been live, that, that police case against a guy in school who'd been stalking me and they dropped it three months before I was upskirted. So I was already in this, I'd already been, it'd been demonstrated to me for years that the police didn't do anything. Like they were a nightmare through that whole case and they had no idea what he was doing. And they were, they were saying things like, we've tried to arrest your stalker, but he wasn't in. Like, you know, so I should have known, but they kind of walked up to me and they said, we've looked at the picture, we've seen what it, it shows more than you'd want it to show, we've seen what it looks like. It's not nice, but like, there's nothing we can do. You won't hear much from us. And they just walked off and then, I kind of lost my mind and was like petulant and like so frustrated and so angry and just off it about how, cause I felt like I'd done everything that is asked of victims and survivors in that moment. Like I'd just been like, I'd got the phone, I had the witnesses, like I'd stood up myself, I'd screamed, I'd gone straight to the police. I knew exactly where security was. I told the security guard, I handed the guy in, I had the picture, I had the phone and it was just like, no, there's not much we can do, sorry. And so that was the catalyst to looking into the law and finding out that in Scotland, upskirting had been a sexual offense for 10 years, but in England and Wales it hadn't. And being like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'd feel like they don't either. So maybe I could like create something or some kind of cultural movement or some kind of cultural momentum that can be turned into political momentum. I just have to be in motion because otherwise I'll lose my mind. And that was kind of how I started that that campaign really. The word activist, does it make you uncomfortable? Yes. Say more. Um, it makes me uncomfortable because I don't think I've earned the right to be called it, but I don't know how else people are meant to understand what I do. And when I say I don't haven't earned the right, it's not that I think it's really it's a it's a real it's I'm really hypocritical about it because I don't feel like I've earned the right to be called it, and yet I really believe in the accessibility of it. I don't believe in the commercialization of it, but I believe in people being able to say if they are embodying the things they care about and they are active in their communities, being able to say that they're an activist. And I don't like this kind of um, hyper intellectualization of it and this kind of exclusiveness of it, because that's not what it is. That's not what it's ever been. Activism has always just been about regular working people in all throughout history globally. So I don't like that separation, but I feel uncomfortable because I think, I think that, that too much has happened. I was an activist and I think to get deep about it, like, cause I did this big thing, I got taken away from being an activist and I got, I got, became a face for it. And I really, and I've, been trying so hard to stay tethered to being able to be in rooms with people and do workshops and like talk about the things we care about and be organizing and so if I haven't had a week where I'm able to organize I get embarrassed about calling myself an activist I the, the more I'm rhetoric and less doing in that week the more I struggle with calling myself an activist I have to be living it and like walking the walk and if I feel like I've been talking the talk for a couple of weeks I'll really struggle to say I'm an activist I'm working on it in therapy I have been for a while <laughs> in my mind 
And I imagine for a lot of people, you're a person who's done the thing and you continue to do the thing, right? You're speaking out, you're mobilizing. And that means you're an activist. And it doesn't have to be this faraway thing and it doesn't have to be excluded. Yeah, and, I, and as you say that, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but somehow I have this like internal struggle with it. I get it. It's also, I imagine that the words for the people who we look up to the most in terms of what they do are the hardest for us to claim ourselves. Totally. And I think when you do something that's at the level of um, visibility that I did, I, I'm very careful about how I talk about because I don't necessarily think that like, I don't actually believe in punitive uh law changing as my type of activism that's not really what I want to do anymore and I don't really love that as a solution anymore so I struggle to talk about that but I think once you do something that visible you get called a whole bunch of things and I think the person I am in the world like I was just called like a change maker a shiro like a girl boss like that's all I was called for like a year every day and so apart from the fact that some of those labels are quite problematic anyway, but like, I think you struggle then to live up to the thing people are consistently telling you are. So you struggle to call you, yourself it somewhat. Yeah. You also, I imagine, become less Gina the person and more Gina the idea, right? Yes, 100%. Yeah. You become what you represent instead of the person you are. Yeah. It's interesting because that was a lot of the genesis for this series was we are all ideas in some way, right? We're the only ones or we are the exceptions to the rules. Or like for me, it started with being called scary by someone higher up than me because I know what I believe and I stand up for it. And that's not scary at all. But like me as an idea, I don't match them. Yeah, you're, to them yeah. you represent something. It's yeah. not you as you know, your humanity as a person. Which is hard because then you're not human anymore. And like, what's the point if we're not human? Yeah, you're detached from yeah. what you really are and who you really are. So going back to that moment, I'm so curious because most of us who are marginalized genders or marginalized identities in any way, at some point, we don't feel safe, right? Yeah. Like in my instinct, at least, when I'm catcalled or when there's a drunk guy harassing me and my friends at the pub, is how do I become invisible? And it's interesting because in that moment and in the ones that follow that moment, you and like I have friends who do that what you did in a smaller scale, right? Like I have a friend who shouts back when people catcall her. And I'm like, where do you get that courage from? And how do you know that this man who's stronger than you isn't going to like attack you in some way? I know someone who stares, just stares at people and she stares them down. But you ran to the police, which that's a whole separate thing. But you went and you spoke up and you continue to speak up. And I'm wondering, is that your instinct? I'm a bit scrappy as a person, somewhat. More than like my sister, like I... If the... If the if the environment is right, like ultimately, if I feel safe enough, which I did, I, you know, intrinsically didn't feel safe because I'd just been assaulted. But like, I was in a crowd with loads of people around me who were right there who couldn't get away and ignore it, like on the tube train or could, like when I've things have happened before. Like there wasn't, there was a, I was in a unique situation where I felt like if I do the right things here, I could get away from him. I could, he won't be able to see me very well. There's people everywhere. Like there was, you know, like in the same way that if I'm in a, on the street and there's someone in a car and they can't call me and they're driving, I might go like swear at them because they're driving off. Whereas if I'm like on the street with a guy, I'm not gonna say a word to him because I'm terrified of him. But that that was a very unique situation in which I felt like I knew where security was. I always check with security as whenever I go anywhere. They were right there. And I think I made some quick decisions that in that scenario, I could potentially do what I w I've laid in bed and wished I'd done 
a million times over. Maybe I could do it in that situation because the, yeah, the environment was maybe right for it in that moment. And also, this is a joke, but it's also true. I'd had like two gins. And I know that sounds like a full joke, like, haha, but it, I did, like my inhibitions. I just, I was like, I, oh my God, he's looking at a picture of me, like, grab the phone. Whereas I think that has been re represented and was represented for about six months. I was like, not you, smash the patriarchy, take the phone. Like, that's not how it felt. I wasn't like that at all. I was just like a bit drunk and like really angry and didn't know what to do and grab the phone. And then once I had it, I was like, people are around me. Everyone can see this is broad daylight. The security's right there. I'm just going to go for it. Like, I'm just going to try. But it was very specific. And I guess also having the other woman there who like advocated for you. And the crowd doing it. And my big sisters with me. And I automatically feel safer in her presence. And then once that moment passed, the the speaking out and all that other stuff in terms of camp, the campaign and the kind of um, defiance of that came from not even the fact that what had happened to me, but the fact that as soon as I talked about it, it was just like loads of kids and loads of women being like, I've been upscaled by my, my male students or like, a 12 year old who was like, this happened to me at school and it feels like I can't go to school. And then it becomes like, oh, I can't not say something because she can't even release her name because she's 12. Like I have to, I have like a laptop and a platform and like, I am relatively safe. So let's talk about it because of who I am in the world, I'm relatively safe. So there becomes a decision you have to make about whether it's about you or it's bigger, I guess, at one point. So I'm curious about that, like constant decision-making because there was, there was the moment of speaking out, right? And then there's the going home and posting on Facebook about it. And mm. I imagine there's some maths you're doing at that point where like, I often wonder, um, either I'm going to get lots of hate. Am I ready for all that hate? Or what if nobody cares? Which is almost scarier. What if I'm the only one who's experienced this? No one. What if no one else is talking about this? So how do I know this matters? And I'm wondering if, if like, did this go through your head? Or were you like pure rage? I was pure rage. I wasn't really thinking straight a lot for that first week. But I also think that there was a lot subconsciously that I'd taken in that made it easier for me. Like I, I will have, at that point in 2017, I will have seen women who look and sound like me having these types of conversations. Like the, the, you know, the representation of like feminist conversations at that point. Like I will have seen that, I will have known subconsciously that as a young slim white woman, people will, who has afforded that level of innocence as I say that people will have maybe reacted to me in a different way. Like all those things will have been in there somewhere, you know? So I think it would have just been easier for me to, to take that step without calculating as much as it would be for other people to take that step because there would so much stuff to consider because there's so many barriers and there's so much stereotyping and there's so much against them. I don't think I don't have that because of who, who I am and what I look like. So I think I'd, I would have found it easier for that reason, not just because I was like angry, but because there was a system set up to make it easier for me to talk about it. And even like when you continue to talk and advocate and like speak truth to power, right? There's the trolls, the angry DMs. And I'm guessing at that point when it was starting out, were there things you were doing? Like I have a friend who at one point had all the haters after them and handed me their social media accounts. It was like, I did that you? with my sister, yeah. I started off thinking I could handle it, like, which is really naive, but being like, no, I'll be able to handle it. Didn't say that consciously, but the, the, the feeling was, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll handle it, I'll be strong. Like, I'll, And there's a certain level of like resilience momentum that you get into like, when you're campaigning like that, where you sort of have to be, and everything's moving quite quickly and things are developing and things are happening organically. And you don't really have time to stop and think, and I didn't, but then when the abuse got really bad, I used to respond to them. 
And then I used to make jokes and I sort of think I was actually making the jokes to that not because I thought they would work, but so I could show the phone to a friend and say, look, I'm not even bothered, I'm making a joke. Like, and then it got really heavy and then I, it caught up with me at one point and I just would cry all the time to my partner. And then, and then it was like, I have to get someone to help me out like with my DMs and my social, cause I can't, I was starting to overtake the actual work that was needing to be done. Like I was distracted and I was like just struggling with it too much. So what do you like, what is your system? If there's someone listening who decides to speak out about something and is terrified, because we all get the hate, right? We all get the angry DMs. And depending on our identities, in different ways, we get hate in different forms. What actionably do you wish you had done? Or is it like find someone like your older sister who can handle it? There's a bunch of things. I wish I wish I'd if I wish I'd gone to therapy during it, not waited for it to be three years after where I was having like a full like nightmare to go um so I could actually have someone supporting me week by week through the process of struggling with all this stuff um I wish I'd yeah given my sister or someone that loved me those accounts sooner uh and done that for a period of time not just like can you do it when I'm on the news and there's loads of rape threats but just like generally I wish I'd used social media like I now use it where I I use it, I still don't do it all the time, but I'm much better at it. Where it's like, I use it, I go on it, I say what I need to say, what's, what, just share the things I need to share, share, ask people to take actions, use it as a tool, and then I dip out, and I delete the app. And it's like, the behavior of how I used it as someone who didn't have a platform, wasn't doing this work, carried over into being someone who, so I'd just be scrolling, and then just getting messages and hate and I'd just be like marinating in this space that was no longer healthy for me but I was so used to using it as like a 21 year old who was just like look at my dinner you know that I was still using it that way when my life had changed like so much so I I I wish I'd evaluated my relationship with it much earlier and been accountable to people who love me around me I push back so much on the people that loved me about it like they'd be like you need to get off your phone and I'd be like I'd hear that as like your dad being like, get off your phone, spend time with us. Instead of them being like, I'm worried about you, you know? I wish I'd actually listened to the people that know me and love me the most about how that was affecting me. And I wish I'd taken breaks from it more. And I wish I'd been accountable to other people and started to use it differently and gone to therapy and been honest about how much it was hurting me and not tried to be like the perfect, like resilient like feminist and be like, I'm not even bothered. Like these guys are just, I say, these guys are just evidence for why the work needs to be done. And that is true statement, but it's like, don't you have to wear that as badge of honor? You don't have to be like, look how much, can I swear? Yeah. Look how much shit I can take. Like I can take so much shit. Like look how strong I am. It's like, you're actually not because you're crying all the time. And like, that's, it's actually nice to admit that instead of just act like you're this resilient person all the time because no one is. It's also hard because there's, I don't know if you still feel this way. I know earlier on you've talked about like the power of social media, like these platforms, right? And it's also where you find community sometimes. Yeah. I've spent a lot of my career like being the only one in the room. Yeah. And there are people like me online. And then it's like, there's also the hate online too, right? Like how do you do it? Like if you delete the app, you lose the people. Yeah, it feels like there's got to be a balance because like that's very true. Like I've found... That it's this, well, it's just a reflect, like social media is just a microcosm of society, right? So it's like, it's not, it's as complex and as nuanced as we are. And there's things, it amplifies the awful and it can be even more brilliant for the good. And so both sides, both those sides exist. And I think for me, it's about trying to create mechanisms so I can get the good out of it as much as possible. And then having a balance so I can shield myself from the bad. So it's like, I now know that if I do media, 
I won't, I shouldn't, I'll delete the app for a bit. I'll post the stuff that I need to post or that I want to post or that I'm obligated to post or that I feel I want to support. And then I'll check out instead of just spending time in the room going like, this hurts, why am I still here, you know? So it's like being able to recognize those, the things that you're really gaining from it, what like the, the community and the organizing and the, the um, connections that you're getting and, and, and ensuring that you do those offline as well. So you can like bring it into the real space and you don't have to only be on it to feel like that. And then recognizing how it hurts you and opting out when you know that those things are gonna happen. And I think I'm better at that now, but it, t- it, takes, it takes time. So do you, do you also feel like there was a point where, like I think a lot about for me, cute dogs, like my, for me, TikTok, the joy is that, right? Totally. And do you still use social media as like a person who- Yes, loves- I went to TikTok and I decided to like feed the algorithm just like the most wholesome, funniest, silliest, purest stuff possible. So like my TikTok is just like a duck playing drums or like a dog or like someone coming home after being away for eight years or like just beautiful stuff that makes me cry with happy tears or makes me cry and I need to cry or, you know. And so I just go on it for that and that's my space. And I do like a roundup of that on Instagram on my stories because I just, I really do believe that there's so much amazing beauty in the world. Those people love each other so much and there's so much to save and so much to fight for. And I think people should see that as well. So like I, I, I take the time to be there and enjoy that. And then I try and separate. So it's like Instagram is like worky stuff. Twitter is like researchy stuff, like new current affairs. TikTok is just fun stuff, just joy. So I, I do, I use it specifically knowing that I'm just gonna look at dogs for four hours. So you also, I imagine like your time also, like the time on Instagram is like- It's yeah. actually less now, yeah. So it's like, I'm, I know how much I'm gonna spend on something because it's like, I'm, I've got a big work week, so I'll be doing this more. Or I'm really gonna need to use Twitter this week because I'm organizing a lot or, you know. So it's also something we think about a lot and I think about a lot in the work I do and in the work you do. It's very easy to feel really sad about the state of the world and to feel hopeless. And I find it very easy to fall into that pit of despair and just like wallow for a bit. Yes. Because everything is awful and I'm just one person and there's only so much that I can do and everything continues to be awful. Where do you get your like, how do you sustain it? Because it seems from the outside, very much from the outside, like for upskirting, like rage was your fuel, right? And just for me, like I burn fast, burn bright, I'm burnt out very quickly. And if rage was my fuel, I'm just curious, like how do you keep going? Well, in terms of hope stuff, I keep going because like, you know, the, which one first? So to answer the first question, like the, it is very easy to get either apathetic or to get hopeless. But like, I try and think of that as like a very natural cycle and a very natural response to the world we live in. Like I try not to punish myself for feel, not feeling hopeful and not feeling like inspired and not feeling like I have it all together all the time, because I think it'd be really, arrogant if I did I'm really odd to feel like that in the world we're living in and in the the society we live in and with the struggles we have so at least then when it comes it's like you're having your brain is having a normal reaction to the things you're seeing and when you do this work you have to have the courage to look at those things for what they are and that makes it very very hard you have to see them for what they are and you have to sit with them and that makes it very hard to stay hopeful all the time it's very normal to feel hopeful I try to give myself the space and time to feel like that and that usually means that I'll be able to come back from it at some point. It might take days, it might take weeks. Sometimes it's taken months, but I'll, I'll arrive back at a place which is like, no, this matters and we have to do this stuff and I have to show up for each other. I wanna be here again. I, I do believe in people and I do. And that will happen again. Um, but it just takes me a bit of time and I have a little, 
um, process I go through to kind of, it's like crying. You feel better when you cry. That's how, that's how I see it. It's like I feel sad about the world and awful and then I get through it and I feel good again, but I have to really let myself have that time. And then keeping going in terms of like the work is like, I read this quote and I like, I think I cried when I read it because I was actually having a really bad week, but it was like, um, if you're not gonna quit, you have to learn to rest. And I, you know, I follow a lot of people like Nat Ministry and lots of people who do lots of interesting work around rest and like in the revolutionary sense, not just like have a bath and a face mask. But like that sentence in itself was like really interesting to me. Cause I was like, I'm, I see myself doing this work for the rest of my life. And if that's a commitment that I, I want, I don't know how else to live. So like, if that's what I'm gonna do, then I'm, I'm gonna have to learn to do this better. And if I can't learn to do this better, I'm actually just gonna be really bad at the work. Cause I have more patience, more compassion, more stamina for the work when I, when I actually spend a week crying on the sofa watching Pixar shorts. Like I actually, it sounds like it's tripe, but it actually allows me to come back like five days later and go, actually, no, I'm here and I've got good ideas now and I feel strong about this. And I think, and I show up for people better and I, I, I'm more generous with my time. And cause I'm not over, you know, I'm not wrought and jaded cause I'm sad. So I think you have to have that, that time off. And I think you have to lean on people and ask for help a lot more. I, this work is about community and it's about the collective. And I think, it's easy to remember that and be like, I want to be there for the collective, but then you don't let the collective be there for you. And like people, while I'm in bed crying one day or like struggling, because I spent three hours talking to an incel about something and trying to get him to understand, which would happen about three weeks ago, then I know that like all my comrades and all my colleagues and all my peers that I know are, are, are lifting that week. And then when, when they're struggling, then I'm lifting that week. So it's just about seeing yourself as part of an ecosystem and trying to like, reject this kind of individualist notion that capitalism gives us that it's like you what you are doing in what any one day is is your value and if you're not like we are part of each other so like accepting that is quite comforting did you have a turning point where where you realize this did you have to go through a process of like allowing or have you always been good about no i've always been really crap it was only in the last couple years it was it's it's through like my friends in the activism space and learning from them and see and seeing their model um being really specific about resting and having very strong boundaries and trying to understand seeing that and being jealous of that first and then being like hang on how are they doing it and why are they doing it and talking to them about it it's like i've learned so much from Aja Baba, who's like a really close friend of mine and we just sit and talk about that kind of stuff and i'm really inspired by how she takes care of herself and how in turn her taking care of herself and being very strong about her boundaries just kind of has this ripple effect that like people around her just start doing it. And then you have this kind of ecosystem working together and it really, it's really inspirational, but it's only been two, in the last two years, I've really learned to do it. I feel like we're all going through this process of recognizing that at least for me, like my collective, it feels like we're all in the same journey of like recognizing, oh, right. Like we're still human. Yeah. Isn't it wild that it takes so much time to recognize? I mean, for many people it doesn't, for me it does but like to to recognize the most fundamental aspects of your humanity, which is that you're like deeply connected to other people. <laughs> and like activism is such a beautiful thing and organizing and advocacy is such a beautiful thing because it's, I see it as quite um, close to what we are, like what we should be. Because without activism and compassion and organizing, you just are the, the kind of rubbish kind of systems and corporations that you've created to be inside and work in. And I just see activism as this kind of ecosystem and it makes me feel more human and makes me feel so connected to people in a way that I haven't before. That is a really lovely way of thinking about it. And also like an antidote to the loneliness that I feel like often is at the heart of so many of the problems. And it's something we've touched on before, um, but I'm curious if you've had this experience, like most of us, 
for me personally, most of my early career, I was the only person who looked like me. It was mostly middle-aged white men and me in rooms. And I was just convinced that I was stupid or had bad ideas because I never thought like anyone else there, right? Yeah. It's just like, yeah, I don't know enough. I need to learn. I need to listen. Like, I'm not going to speak up. And it took me a really long time to recognize that I'm not bad. And I've just lived a different life. I live in a different body. I have a different set of experiences. And they're just as valid. But for so many young people, so many young women, so many young people of color, so many of us who are other in any way, there's a sense of like we are alone in our experiences because they're not reflected in what we consume online, potentially by the people we're surrounded by in conversations that are happening. And the answer clearly seems to be tap into community, right? You're not alone. There are many of you out there. But like actionably, it's really hard. How do you even start it? Yeah, you have to be really courageous. I think it's like the same as when you say, you know, I've just moved to Australia and I'm an adult and I'm trying to make friends. Like it's hard. And it's, you have to be really brave to put yourself out there. And when you're, I guess, on the receiving end of all these systems telling you a bunch of things about yourself, it's even harder because you're like, well, but I think I know the answers of what's going to happen if I do that because I'm being shown those answers every day. I definitely would always uh, rate social media for that in the same way that social media gives people anonymity and they choose to weaponize that for harm. I think having that slight buffer between you and uh, a, a subject you're really interested in or like a community who are doing really interesting things that you want to be in or like, I want to volunteer, but I'm too nervous. But like, I'm a graphic designer, so I could like create some posters for this like direct rally and I could talk to people online and and then we're on a Slack and then, oh, we'll meet up for a coffee. And it gives you like a slower ease in to being able to do it. And I've definitely found that through social media myself, like I wasn't in this space until I started doing this work. And, you know, for two years, it was only when I changed law that like everyone was like, hey, come to this thing. Like <laughs> that didn't, I was working in office the whole time. So for those two years, I've, I did that. Like I would just follow, like go through and research a bunch of people doing interesting stuff and initiatives and I'd follow loads of things. And then I would kind of send a message and be like, hey, I'm so embarrassed like to say this, but like, I really like what you're doing. I was just wondering if you uh, are doing anything, uh, meet, do you do meetups or is there any, and like really just asking questions online. But it's so much easier to do that than to go up to someone and be like, hey, can I have a drink with you? Because I want to be a friend. <laughs> like, it's really scary. It is scary. Doing it online gives you a little bit of a buffer, but also like, you know, you're in your local community like every single community has stuff happening but you just don't look for it and you're so life's so busy there's so much pressure there's so much going on that you don't time is hard to come by but definitely like reaching out in your like immediate sphere of influence or like friends you have and being like hey do you want to like get together and have a glass of wine or coffee each week and like read a book each week on you know I have friends who wanted to get into feminism I'm like how do I get into feminism it's like just pick up anything about feminism that you want to read or listen to a podcast or say to one friend, do you want to meet up each week and we'll read a book together or we'll discuss an article we've read or like it literally starts that small and it could be with people that you know because it's about gaining confidence. It's not about like, doing a big thing or doing it right. It's just about creating a carving little space out for yourself where you feel safe and talk about the things you care about and you can invite people into that or then the two of you go to an event because you've been meeting up having the drinks and having reading the books or you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be, it's like exercising a muscle. You do one rep first, you don't going deadlift. It doesn't have to be the entire marathon. Totally. I doesn't even have to be go to an event on your own. People used to come to my events and say, I'm on my own. I'm so, I'm shaking. I'm so nervous. I'm so scared. I've never done anything like this before. Give them a hug and be like, okay, well, there was actually like this really special moment at one of my events where this, this older lady was at the front and she was asking about like, how do I start? Like, I really care about the world and I really care about nature, but like, how do I start? 
And I was kind of asked her questions like, what is it you care about? And she was really into birds. And I was saying like, would well, you bird watch? She was like, no, I'm, I'm too nervous. I haven't ever done anything about really about birds. I just kind of sit in my garden and I like, watch the birds and I know all the birds, but I don't really want to go out and do anything because I'm too nervous and it's like not cool. And anyway, I was like, does anyone else in here like birds? And this like other old lady, hand up. I could like could have cried. And I was like, do you mind to my standing? And they stood up and I, we were in, it was in a city. It was like a city tour. So they were from the same place. And at the end, they they got together and we kind of facilitated conversation. They like went for a drink and I was and they gonna like meet up and go bird watching. And I was like, you know, you hear like climate or like conservation and you think I have to go to a rally or like I have to like start a campaign about like saving the birds. Like, no, you don't. Like you just connect with nature each week with someone, find someone else who feels the same and start there and grow it slowly. And like, they're still, I got a message like six months after on Instagram that they're still meeting up and stuff. So it's really just about that. It's just about people and, you know, being courageous enough to say, I like this thing because you'll always find that someone else goes, I also like this thing or I also feel that other way, but you won't know until you say it. We don't have to do that in a public way. You do that in a private way on online with a buffer. That's the hardest thing is just like putting yourself out there. Yeah, it's really hard. And I love that like you were sliding into pe people's DMs basically being like, can we hang out? I was and I was nervous too. And just like uh, being honest, like engaging with people's work in a respectful way. If you really get out something out of their work, like telling them, you know, I feel like we don't tell each other how the positive things that we feel about our stuff. We feel embarrassed to do it. And I, I decided to do that because when people did that to me, it really felt like I could continue the campaign. And through that, I would like meet people. But it's just anything from meeting up for friends with coffee and having a feminist chat to going to an event with those two friends when I felt strong enough to do it, you know? There's also something there about like, it all feels so much bigger than us, right? Mm. Like, like all of this is more than any one of us, right? No, exactly. Even when you think about safety, if you don't feel safe, this isn't a safe space. If you don't have rights, then like none of us are safe in our like, it's all interconnected. And it's sometimes daunting because it's just like, well, I'm just one tiny human and I'm going to go to this like one book club and like, what difference is it really going to make? We look at the climate crisis and it's like, well... It's too big just for me and it's too big for me and my one friend. So what do we do? But that's why the collective, being able to force yourself to think in the collective helps so much. How do you do that? I spend a lot of time reading about it and I spend a lot of time, like it's like forcing your brain to make that connection. So like, it's like a lot, I spend, my therapist said, spend time with people who inspire you. And I was like, I do, my friends are great. She was like, no, no, I mean, sit and watch hours of documentaries, sit and listen to hours of podcasts when you're having a bad week. So if I'm having a bad week, I'll like, spend an hour just watching everything Bell Hooks has ever said, like generally, or like Stacey Abrams or like Ben Hurst, who's a friend of mine, but I think he's incredible in his work or Tony Porter. I'll just sit with people for hours. And it's like being in school where I have to like sit and train my brain to be like, look at all these people who just went, oh, I'm just going to say a thing or this is how I actually feel. And you can't tell me I don't feel like that. And I have to spend time with those people for hours to feel inspired again. And that inspiration doesn't have to go into anything. It's just to fill my cup back up in some way. Um, and when you do that, I feel like you, when you spend time with people, regular people who have done things, small or big, in lots of different ways, don't only look at people who've like changed law, don't only look at people who like, don't just be like, only read about Martin Luther King. Like you've got to like look at all different types of people and find all different types of people. That's why we're so lucky to have the internet. We can find all different types of people doing interesting things. You actually realize in time, when you do that long enough, when you make it a practice in your life for years or months, that like regular small people are actually the only thing I've ever done anything. Like the, everything we have is because of regular small people. So like 
it's a it's kind of a trick the whole thing is a trick to make you feel like you're a small person like and being one person isn't enough and being a small regular working person isn't enough and what but actually everything we have has come from working people like every progressive we only have weekends because of working people and unions and jewish activists like we only have the things we have because of working people but you don't see any of that that doesn't exist in the public sphere like they don't want you to see that so you have to actually spend time reading on working class history and like watching cool documentaries about things and like really spending time with working people and going like we're actually really capable and 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 also in your life there's a big one is having people around you who don't make you feel bad when you say the things you care about and don't make you feel embarrassed when you like are really emotional about I don't know something and you cry about it because it's just too much like I sit with my family and cry about the fact that part of my family don't you know, support me in my work and it's really hard and, you know, and they just sit there for three hours and listen to me repeat the same thing because it doesn't matter because it's what I care about. I'm just, it's real. The emotion's real. And I think I had friends who would have thought I was being divisive or like thought I was doing it because I wanted to up my own platform or whatever. You know, those people in my life who, when I started the campaign, were like, why do you think you can do that? And I was like, I don't. I don't know what else to do. Like, I'm losing my mind. And I had to deprioritize those people because it's really important that you have a support system around you who like understand your heart and like have people who feel like home. And so when you say, I want to go to this event and they go, I don't know anything about it. They still come because it's important to you. Like you have to have that in your life if, if you care about these things because you'll struggle without it. And it's, I imagine it's also like a journey to get to recognizing that like the people who are undervaluing what you want they don't matter. No, they're not as important. And it's also like, you know, those people might not be your family. Like you might not have the the relationship with your family that you wish you had. But so many people, especially LGBTQIA plus people that I know who do this work, have found through social media often and through these movements and these circles have found support systems of people who like Tanya Compass does Queer Christmas and like everyone goes and like celebrates together and the connections that have come from that. It's like, you can find those people, you can find those spaces, you, but you, it, recognizing that you do deserve a support system around you that like validate the things that you feel, even if they're not things that they think about or feel every day, that is hard to get there. It's also, it like, it harkens back, I think, to what you were saying with rest as well. Like the word deserve. Yeah. It's it's a hard one to like accept. Right? Oh my God, yeah. We all deserve it. And we're we're equally as human as everyone else whose rights and space and safety we're fighting for. Yeah. We deserve that space and that support as well, even if we have privileges in other ways. Yeah, totally. I think everyone does. I think everyone deserves that stuff. And I think that's what makes, that's what connects us and makes us human. And I think there's so much beauty in that, in this work and this, I don't know, it's not really work. I always call it activism work, but it's not really work. It's like how you live. But there's so much beauty in it because it really, you really do, the, like you, you get to see the humanity of, of people in a way that society doesn't often want you to. And you get to forge connections and build support systems in unconventional, quote unquote, non-traditional ways that are so much more nourishing than than society often offers you them, you know? Going back to what you said about finding inspiration in stories, books, documentaries of working people, because we're all small people, even the biggest people are just one human in the end. Like we're all just one human. Fully. Where do you tend to turn... Like, what does inspiration look like? What is your core bank of, like, when you're having a really shit week, you know that this will make you feel better? Oh, I just, like, I read all about love. <laughs> I'm Bell Hooks. Um, I watch, like, TED Talks. 
by people that are inspirational. I've watched so many TED Talks and then I get terrified because I remember I did one and then I'm like, oh my God, I can't, I can't watch. I can't even think about that. Um, I watch documentaries of people trying to do things in society. So I watch like things through history. So people who have like changed society, but usually not kind of documentaries that will sort of platform them as these kind of uh, immaculate, remarkable characters, but more ones that are representative of the struggle of it and the reality of it. Um, I remember the first one I ever watched when I was doing, when I was trying to change the law and I was in a really bad place, we knocked down the house with AOC and this was years ago when I didn't really know anything about her and then she just kind of come to Capitol Hill and I remember watching it and being like, is there a genre of TV where I can see people doing this stuff? Like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And Stacey Abrams, like all in for democracy. I was like, love that. Just being able to, I think activism has to humble itself. But I, I also think as activists and campaigners, we have to really stay tethered to other activists and activists through history's humanity. Because I think we can also, in our search for inspiration and need to be able to see that things are possible to continue the work, I think we can kind of dehumanize historical figures by how much we revere them, if that makes sense. And I think watching things, you know, documentaries and TV shows and reading about them through their own words, not through like the media and the way that they represent them is really important because you see so much of yourself or you see so much people around you in them and you realize actually they were just regular people, just really who went through a lot trying to do something because it was just the right thing to do. Um, so I turned to I turned to documentaries and TED Talks mostly and books. Uh, Bell, I just read Bell Hooks reading, uh, writing, Tony Morrison. Like I just turned to those people continuously because I they just, Bell Hooks just feels like a warm bath. I don't know how else to describe her really. A lot of people say that about Bell Hooks. God, yeah, lost it when we lost her recently. Yeah, it's it's also like for me, Knock Down the House was one of the first things I ever watched. And I was like, oh, she looks vaguely like yeah. me. Not that we have the same background, but like something clicked. And I was like, oh, there's space for me. And it's the daily stuff, right? Like when you see someone like getting ready in the morning, who's like, yeah, and she's up. tired. No, she's not put a suit on and being like, let's go. And like in their organizational meetings when they've got the maps out and she's kind of saying, like, I, I actually think it's good because I don't think he's going to even expect me. Like he's not even going to expect me to run. So I think we can actually use that in our favor. And they're disagreeing, you know, in the team and there's friction and there's struggle and is uncomfortable. And she's the yeah, bit where she's breathing and she's going like, he's going to try and make me feel really small. And she's actually physically struggling with it. And I just, I was, you know, two days before I was in my living room going like pacing and being like, I can't go into parliament because he's going to object to it. I can't be on camera, I can't be on camera and object to it. And Georgie's like holding me down on the sofa and holding my hands. And just seeing that was like, oh, she's a human. That's how I'm reacting normally. I'm not losing it. I'm not quote unquote hysterical. Like this is, this, this is real, you know? It's also the history part, right? Like history textbooks don't include that stuff. They're not human. Like they're not, yeah. I never learned about any of this in school. Like We need to change our history curriculums to we include We really that stuff. do, yeah. So to wrap things up, um, this is cheesy. This is the cheesy question always where we call the series Little Revolutions because there are big sweeping changes, right? But also most change happens in small increments. And how we do things in our lives, in our communities, in our relationships, in DMing that one person, right? So when when you think about that younger version of you, someone who's out there itching to take up space, to use their voice to feel safe in a world that doesn't allow them safety, what what little revolutions would you suggest people make in their own lives? Um, to listen to their 
own anger and their own fears and not be scared of them. Um, I think depending on who you are, especially as a woman, um, and depending on what, what a woman and what background you have or what race you are, I think we anger looks different. Uh, anger is treated differently on different people by society. And I think you can really sacrifice those parts of yourself because of how society punishes you for being angry or punishes you for being fearful or punishes you for. And I think we've kind of, a lot of women that I work with, I think we kind of try and ignore what we're angry about. And I think we're kind of trying to ignore what we're fearful of because it's too much work if we reveal it. And it's like, I'm gonna have to face it and then I'm gonna have to, do I then have to do something about it? But I would like really encourage people not to, a little revolution is just listen to the things that you care about. Like when you're in a bar and you can't stop talking about something or like when you're watching something and it makes you really angry, it's like, why? Like just really like drill down into what that anger is and where it's coming from. Like write it down, like journal, not like journal, you know, like not like do journaling because it's cute for Instagram, but like literally just sit there and like, why does that make me angry? Like, why am I frustrated about this? Like who is, where's is that feeling coming from? You know, introspection, analyze that. Don't be f scared of that because actually it's just what you really care about and society will really try and um, kind of get you to sacrifice those parts of yourself. So you can show up to work every day and you can continue the system and you can do the thing and I would really encourage like every young woman and every young femme and every young person. And I wish I'd encourage myself as a young girl to really like listen to why I was angry, what I was angry about. What are you angry about right now? The cost of living crisis and the Tories. I hate them so much. Like I'm so angry about them. Um, I'm very hopeful with the Enough is Enough campaign. And I'm angry about how little we are in the West and the Global North listening to the Global South and indigenous people about climate change. And I'm angry that I'm sort of too scared to plan my future because of climate change. And I really want to see people lose their shit about it and make it incredibly unsustainable for the government to continue the way they are, what they're doing currently. The thing about climate change especially feels so universal. We're stuck in this paralysis right now. Yeah, it's everything, like it's everything. Like in all the things we do as activists, I work in gender and all that kind of stuff. It's like, it feels so all encompassing because it's like, well, without that, we all this work sometimes I feel like without that all this work doesn't matter but then then I remember that all of it's so intimately connected that we're all just pulling it like all pulling it threads like it's all the same quilt but it makes me so angry and I know I have to listen to that anger and then 2023 I'm gonna show up a lot more for the climate movement in as many capacities as I can because I think I've been fearful that I shouldn't because no Gina people know you use the gender one so like that's me trying to be like I'm really angry and fearful what do you need to do about it, Gina? You need to actually go and help more, like show up for that more. It's difficult because none of us can do it all, right? We all feel like we have to stay in your lane, yeah. which is exactly what you're describing. But the planet is everyone's lane. Like we all have equal claim to our planet. Totally. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I think you asked me probably every question you asked me, I haven't been asked. So I think it was perfect, thank you. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Gina Martin for joining us. Check out our show notes for where you can follow Gina. This episode was brought to you by Frida. Our producers are Claire Richardson and Abisoye Adelusi, and I'm your host, Masuma Ahuja. Please don't forget to follow Little Revolutions wherever you listen to podcasts and to leave us a review. It really helps.